you. God, I ask that, uh, as Matt speaks tonight, that your word would um, show its character of being living and active, God, and that um, your spirit would awaken in us a, a deeper knowledge of you and a deeper understanding of who you've called us to be. God, I ask that your peace would be with us throughout tonight and throughout the rest of this week and throughout our city. God, that um, we would be able to know that you are with us and feel you as we go. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening. Welcome to Sojourn. I'm so glad that you guys are with us uh, tonight on a very hot summer day in Portland. So let's be thankful that we have AC in this building. It may not be the most efficient, but it's central AC. And so I put it on 68 degrees this morning, and uh, I was hoping it would be nice and cool for all of us when we got in here tonight. And so be thankful for that. Last year on the hottest day of summer, we had an outside barbecue. And so this year we planned it a little bit better where we're inside during the, one of the hottest days of our summer months. Um, if you haven't been with us, this is our last week in our summer series um, where we've been doing a mini-study in the Gospel of Luke. So we haven't gone through the whole Gospel of Luke, but we've just picked different chapters from the Gospel of Luke where we have looked at Jesus' ministry to people and really how he befriended people, how Jesus practiced hospitality, and how he invited those that culturally at the time would have not been welcome, that they were uh, kind of shocked that Jesus would spend time with these people and that he would join them around a table um, but we got to see where he changed people's lives as he would invite them uh, to join him or as he was invited to others, and he would, he would sit with them and join them at the table. And so really, if you think about it, a lot of what we've looked at is how we practice hospitality that, with those specifically the world considers outsiders. And so the challenge has been throughout this whole time, think about who it is that you invite to your table. Who is it you invite to your parties? Is it always those that look just like you? Is it always your friends or those you're comfortable with? Or do you ever join those who are different than you? Who, who you wouldn't maybe naturally invite, or who maybe, maybe it's that person that's w at work who's a little awkward, and everyone knows that they're awkward, or maybe, and especially if they're socially awkward, you're not sure if you want to invite them over, because then they're going to meet your other friends, and you're going to feel obligated to spend time with them, but maybe that's the person you need to invite. I know you all were just picturing someone who's, who's socially awkward. That's the person you need to invite over to your next dinner party, or, or whatever it may be, uh, so that you can love on them and practice this hospitality as we have watched Jesus do. We titled this series, Around the Table, Joining Jesus in the Ordinariness of Life, because every single week we have watched Jesus interact with those that the world despised. In everyday life, we see Jesus change the lives and hearts of people. Jesus welcomes and he offers this message of rest in himself. He said, this is a message of love and grace that can only come through me. We see the Pharisees, we see the scribes, they're trying it their own way. They're trying to follow all the rules and the religious um, institutions and really legalism. And Jesus says, that won't cut it. And then you see those who aren't really trying at all, who just made a, a mess of their lives. And he says, that also won't cut it. But only coming to myself and the message that I offer, that you can come and you can rest. And that's been the same message that's been offered to every single one of us in this room. And the same message that we offer to every single person around us in our city. Each week as a church, we've encouraged you to join others around the table for dinners, for coffee, for games, for fire pits, whatever it is. Because you think about most of life is done at a table. It's either a, a coffee table or a dining room table or a picnic table. 
or some other type of table, but that's where you're doing most of life as you sit down and you enjoy one another's company. And so we've invited you to be very intentional whenever you do that. And some of you may be wondering, can it really be that easy? Is it as easy as joining people at a table? Can evangelism specifically and, and outreach and discipleship, can that actually happen in the ordinary? If you grew up in church like I did, you always kind of knew these were the, the programs. The evangelist was the special guy who came in to speak from out of town, and he kind of went all over the city or all over the country uh, sharing these things. And then the rest of us were told to, that you had to go make disciples, but in order to go make disciples, you had to sign up for this special class or some kind of special program and, and sometimes take them through these really thick books. You're like, is, is that what it looks like? Is it, you know, Matt, it sounds like you've boiled it down to joining people at the table. And in a very real way, I would say, yes, absolutely, it is that simple. A simple way to think of outreach is this. Ordinary people, I would say that we're all ordinary people. No offense if you came here thinking you were special tonight. We're all ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. It is that simple. Just living your everyday life where God has placed you. So you've probably heard it said where you live, work, and play on the street that you live in, the neighborhood that you live in, the job that you work, the school that you attend, and living that with gospel intentionality. So as you interact with other people, and that's what we've watched Jesus do and Jesus model for us. So tonight we're going to conclude this series. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke once again, chapter 24. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you, you want to physically open one, there's uh, blue Bibles in the back, or it should be uh, next to me on the screen here as well. And what we're going to see tonight is that Jesus eats with his disciples after he rose from the dead. And we're going to see many encouraging things kind of come out of this text. And so this is after the resurrection has taken place. And so go ahead and, and turn there, and let me pray for us, and we'll start in verse 13. God, we want to give this night over to you. God, we've already paused and, and, and taken time to, to pray for different things. We've sang songs of praise and worship to you. And God, now we get the opportunity to open your word. God, every week as, as I prepare and then even as I'm up here now, my prayer is that you would remove the person who is standing here out of the way. God, I know that sometimes my uh, illustrations or analogies or other things I might throw are, are really can be man-made and can distract from the message at hand. So I'm asking tonight that your presence would be here, that your spirit would move throughout the room, and that your word, your living word, would, be, would, would, would breathe life in every single person who's sitting here tonight. As we look at this passage where you've come back uh, after being killed on the cross and that you sit down and, and eat with your disciples, God, I ask you to speak to us now in your name. Amen. All right, verse 13, Luke 24. says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were walking with the, talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And so we didn't look at the first 12 verses of this chapter, but just to set the setting, the, the resurrection has just taken place. And so the opening phrase is that very day. What that means is, is Sunday, or more accurately what that means is the day of the resurrection. And so think about that. There's all this buildup to this idea of the resurrection happening and the resurrection taking place. And so the resurrection is still very fresh as these two are starting to take their journey towards Emmaus. There's a lot of chatter and buzz that's surrounding the event itself. Think about the news story is still developing. So think about just even news stories in our own culture and society as they start to develop. And you've got all the different news sources, and you're getting different bits and pieces and updating by the minute, by the hour, and 
Here's the newest information that we have. So all that's still developing. CNN and Fox are telling similar yet very different stories of the resurrection and what that looks like. Social media is blowing up, and the hashtag resurrection is trending. Okay? I'm trying to bring a kind of a modern-day twist to it here. And then we find these two, these two individuals. They're initially unnamed, and it says that they're talking about the events at hand. And they're headed to this village called Emmaus. Now, we're not told much about these disciples. In fact, it doesn't tell us exactly why, but they are possibly headed there after celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem, the meal that we looked at last week. And the actual location in, uh, of Emmaus is uncertain, but it was somewhere in Judea, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So think about when you're walking, that's not a short trek. It's not just like walking a few blocks down to the park here. I mean, it's a seven-mile trek, which some of you maybe do on a regular basis, but it, it takes a little while to do this, especially at that time. And so they're taking this, this long journey towards Emmaus. And Luke doesn't reveal to us what they're talking about, but based on the entirety of the passage, we can assume that it must refer to stories about the empty tomb and the angels. So I can imagine them walking and talking and saying, did, did you hear that they, the, the tomb is empty? Did you, hear, you know, did you hear this? Or I heard this account from this person, or this source told me this. So that's kind of what I'm imagining is happening here. And we're going to see that conversation continue, and then we're going to see Jesus actually join this conversation. Jesus kind of invites himself into the scene here, starting in verse 15. It says, while they were just talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so we see Jesus draw near to these two disciples, and he decides to join them on their journey and discussion. Now, on that note, I love that we've watched Jesus. Just he invites himself to wherever he wants to be. He's invited himself over to people's houses for, for dinners, for meals, which that's not normally what you do. Here he is. He just, he's invited himself to join these guys on a walk. You can imagine if, if you're these two guys, and maybe, maybe it's like a private time and just friendship time, and all of a sudden there's this third guy, and you're like, what, hey, how, how you doing? And you kind of want to keep walking. You ever been there? And then this person just kind of follows along with you, and you're like, well, I guess we've got a third wheel now. There's someone else who's joined us on this, this walk that we're taking. And take note of a few things that stood out to me. While the resurrected body of Jesus is glorious, they were prevented from recognizing him. So we're told they don't, they don't recognize Jesus. I think otherwise the reaction would have probably been a little different. So they don't recognize that it's Jesus who's joining. They just know it's some other person there. And God is the one to prevent them from recognizing Jesus because Jesus was to be re revealed eventually by the grace of God, but at a later time at which point God appointed. And so for whatever reason, it doesn't really give us a deep explanation, but they don't recognize that this is Jesus. This is the one they're most likely conversing and talking about here. And this is a reminder that we need God to open the, our eyes and the eyes of the culture to the truth. And so you, you think about this. Uh, we were watching a movie last night. I think it was called Beautiful Boy, if I'm not mistaken. Some of you maybe have seen this movie, so I'm hopefully not going to ruin the, the movie for you. Um, but there's a, a son who is a, basically a drug addict. And, and you see kind of the turmoil and, and the, the pain that causes a family. And the, and the father's just loving him and loving him. And finally, the father gets to a place in the movie. And he just says, I can't save you. I can't do this because the father had tried everything. And when I, when I saw that moment in the movie last night, I thought, man, that is really our posture and I know that's my posture as a church player. Like, I can't save you. I look at the people around and say, I can't, I can't do it. God has given me a role, but it's not me that saves you. And that we cannot convince people of their need for Jesus. We can hopefully point to Jesus, but it's Jesus who has to open the truth, open their eyes to see his truth. 
We're reminded of that in Psalm 118, verse 23. It says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. D.W. Cleverly Ford said, we cannot see the risen Christ, although he is walking with us, unless he wills to disclose himself. And so that's what's happening here. You always think about that with the, we've talked about hopefully you're joining people around the table. So I want you to think of people right now with me. Those that, that you say, they don't necessarily reconcile, recognize themselves as Christ followers. They don't know Jesus. And you may think, man, I'm hitting dead ends. I'm hitting walls. And man, man I'm joining them around the table. Like they love getting coffee or they love getting lunches. They love getting drinks. And, and we're having spiritual conversations, but nothing is happening. So hopefully this will encourage you to go, you can't save them. Continue to do that. Continue to be present with them and pray that God would open their eyes and open their heart and that the truth would be made known to them just like it was to you. Now, some of you might be in here and say, but I've been, I've been following the Lord since I was pretty young. I don't even remember that moment. Well, praise God for that. But some of you may say, you know what? I, I just started following the Lord or I was in my 20s or whatever it may be. And think about your life before that. No one, no one convinced you. It was God himself that revealed himself to you. And so that is our prayer for a city around us and the world around us. See how Jesus engages in their conversation in verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's almost as if Jesus is having fun with them by asking them about their conversation. I'm thinking about Jesus, like, here's Jesus, the one that they're talking about, and he's going like, have you not heard about this guy? Have you not heard about Jesus? Like, I'm Jesus. I'm trying not to crack a smile. I'm just, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate with him a little bit and having this conversation. Like, no, tell me about him. I've never, I've never heard anything about Jesus. And what is it that happened? Oh, he died? And then someone took him out? You know, I'd be kind of playing with their head a little bit. If you know me that well, then you know that would definitely be what I would do. And Jesus' question about their conversation actually caused a somber reaction in them. It says they were sad. These two have been deeply moved by the event itself. They were looking for the hope of Jesus. And now here they are. Jesus is right next to them. They don't recognize them, and it says they're sad. Cleopas, he believed this was common knowledge, and he wonders, how is it that this stranger, this man who's entered into our, our journey, how is it that he cannot be familiar with this event? They think this must be the only person that, who does not have knowledge of this actually taking place. Apparently, they've been living in a cave because somehow they have missed all the buzz and the chatter that everyone's talking about. Like, everyone knows about this from the young to the old, and somehow this individual has missed it. It's the talk of the town. And we don't know much about Cleopas aside from this story, but imagine that's the reputation you get, is you're known as the individual that asked Jesus about his own crucifixion and resurrection. Can, can you imagine? Like, oh, like, now the joke's on him late, once we get to the later parts of the story. Like, you're the one who asked him about that actually happening, that taking place. Like, that must be, that must be embarrassing to know, be known as that individual. We can, he continues in, in verse 19. Jesus said, or he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So we see Jesus is addressed as a prophet here, which in one stand, is, it, that's a correct term. You could say that Jesus is a prophet, but it's also an inadequate designation of Jesus unless added to prophet is also things like Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Lord, etc. 
They saw, they saw Jesus as a prophet because they had a limited perception of Jesus. Yet their hope in him for redemption means that they must have in actuality seen him as more. And so, so they know that he's, he's at least this, but they, there's this hope that they're hoping that he's more than just this. And they point out that Jesus is mighty in deed and word. They were impressed by the reputation that Jesus carried. What was Jesus known for? Known for his miracles. Jesus has this reputation. He's known for casting out demons. If you don't believe there's demons in our city, you just need to drive around a little bit more or walk around a little bit more. There is demonic forces at work in our city. Jesus was known for performing healing. When we lived in South Asia, majority of Hindus who came to know Jesus and would say that they are followers of Jesus now, a lot of it, most of them came through some form of physical healing. And so you may say, do you believe in physical healing? Absolutely I do. Does it always happen? No. But God chooses to use it when he wants to, to bring someone. I knew, I knew entire families that gave their life to Christ because of a, uh, a physical ailment that was healed. We see Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins. Do you know anyone else who's known for that? That's their reputation? Man, this individual, when he speaks, there's divine authority, and he can actually forgive sins. I don't know anyone else that has that reputation. And we see Jesus has this extensive divine teaching, and he taught with divine authority. Now, my prayer, as, as someone who gets up regularly and teaches and preaches, is that I do it with divine authority, but that authority is coming from God himself. Jesus just, it, it was just natural. And we see that in verse 20, what Judas had done earlier in delivering Jesus up to the chief priests and rulers, they, the chief priests and rulers, in turn did the same thing by delivering Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. And so we see that the physical act of crucifixion was by the Romans, but Luke here is placing the human responsibility of Jesus' crucifixion on the religious leadership of the day. I really want us to pay attention to verse 21. It's perhaps the most relatable verse in this entire section. It says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And so their hope contrasts the people's view of Jesus with that of the worldly religious leadership. It says they had hoped. What did they hope for? That he would be the one to redeem Israel. This is the, they had hoped this is the one they were looking for and longing for. They had hoped that he would be the promised deliverer. Throughout history, they've been promised there's one coming who would deliver the world, who would redeem Israel. There's one coming. It says they had hoped. It's worth noting here that redemption in the ancient world signified deliverance on payment of a price. Of course, God doesn't owe anything to anyone. I think sometimes we think, well, God owes me. No, God doesn't owe anything to anyone. But he chose willingly to sacrifice Jesus for the payment of our sins, which we looked at a little more depth last week. And so really this phrase is showing that we live in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And most of us find it hard, I would think, to enter the disappointment and grief of these two disciples here in this story when it says they had hoped. But many of us are really following or have followed or know people that are following their own version of the Emmaus Road. Do we not? Do we not do this? Have you not said, I had hoped? And fill in the blank with what you had hoped in. Or we had hoped collectively. And then we're disappointed. So what do we do? We walk away from hope. 
So we had, we had hope, but then now we've walked away from hope. We walk away in disappointment, unmet expectations. For many, and this may be some of your stories in the room, and I know for out of doubt you know people, for many this involves walking away from the church. Because instead of putting their hope in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, they put their hope in, in the institution of the church. Yes, that is established by God, but the church, what we see, what, what we're doing, sojourn, is going to disappoint you. If you're looking for the perfect church, you probably should get up and leave now. I can give you some really good recommendations of really polished churches and churches do things way better than we do. I can give you big churches. I can give you small churches that meet in houses, that meet in big uh, cathedrals. But I promise you, every single one of those is going to leave you disappointed. And so for some people, it involves walking away from the church. It's not uncommon to get a visitor here, and, and that is part of their story. Say, hey, how'd you find out about us? Well, I left the church. <laughs> I grew up in church, or I was part of church, but now I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of looking again. And we'll say, you are welcome here. And they always like to follow up the coffee and say, we're not perfect. <laughs> what was wrong with your last church? All right, we're, maybe we don't have that problem, but we've got this other issue going on over here because we're still broken people. And it's not only individuals that are living this way. Our entire world lives this way. But it might sound more like this. We had hoped in capitalism. We had hoped, this is really big in our city, in progressivism. We had hoped in socialism. We had hoped in conservatism. We had hoped in liberalism. We had hoped in scientific progress. We had hoped in something else. Fill in the blank. What is it, what is it you see people hoping in in our city? That's really where you're able to identify their idols a lot of times and spiritually minister to them. So what is it you're placing your hope in? And similar to these two disciples, our culture is on its own road to Emmaus. We're heading away from Jerusalem because we had hoped in something, and that something has let us down. Pick back up in verse 22. It says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And so now these travelers, as they're having this conversation, and Jesus is part of this conversation, they single out what they've learned up to this point. And part of what they've learned is from eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. So it says some of the women first found the empty tomb. Now that, as a little side note, that is a shocking fact. And I love this little fact, because culturally and historically, if you're going to make something up like the resurrection of Jesus, then you would have not had women as the first groups to find the empty tomb. Because culturally at that time, no one would have believed you. So why would they do that if they knew that, that man, this is going to be a made-up story. We're going to make this very believable. Well, that's not the group of people that you have find the empty tomb. The only way that this could be true, of a true account, is that it was women who found it. And we see Jesus always honoring and uplifting and valuing women. So I love how that is the story. That was a group of women who went and found the empty tomb first. It says they even saw visions of angels. And Peter and others with him went to verify the tomb was empty, but did not find Jesus. I love that, it, once again, I love those women it was first. And then the guys kind of followed along. Like, well, let's, let's go see what, what, they're, what they're up to. And it's like, he's not here. We found this, the tomb. It's empty. So others want to verify, like, okay, let's, like, whoa, this, it, it's real, we're, what we're hearing. But sadly, they conclude when they don't see him there, they, they walk away skeptical. They're not sure about it. 
So we see the disciples that walked with Jesus, they were just as skeptical about his resurrection as modern man. Maybe as you are tonight. These, these individuals had physically walked with Jesus. They had actually joined Jesus around the table. They had done life with Jesus. And they still don't believe. And Jesus even told them multiple times, I am going to die. My death is coming. And three days later, I'm going to come back to life. So he told them this time and time again. But here we are. We find the resurrection, and they're kind of scratching their heads like, okay, he's not here. <laughs> We're not sure where he went. We're not sure how the stone got moved. Where is his body? And so they're just as skeptical as maybe you and I are. And my guess is, even if you're following the Lord, you've had those moments where you're like, did this really happen? Like, I watched this documentary on, on Netflix, and it kind of, like, made me reconsider this. Or I took this class in college, and, and that, that college professor, like, he had all these claims that, I mean, really seemed pretty legit. They seemed to refute the claims of the Bible and Jesus. That's nothing new. His own followers, those who ate with him, had these questions. They weren't sure about it. So this caused doubt to enter their minds on what the women had shared with them, rather than what should have taken place. This should have been an obvious celebration. There should have been a conclusion here. They should have thrown a party that says, he is alive. What we do at Easter time, whenever churches act like it's their, their Super Bowl, which really we get to do that every single week. So I'm kind of letting you in on a secret. Like we get to celebrate Jesus every single week and that he is alive. But, you know, Easter time, churches kind of put a lot of emphasis and spend a lot of money on doing that, and that's fine. That's what they should have been doing, but instead they're kind of walking away like, we had hoped, and now we're not so sure. It's interesting to me that we see that these individuals, they know facts about the gospel, but they don't yet recognize the face of the gospel. They know all the facts, and they've learned different things. And maybe you're with me. Maybe you can quote different verses. But you, and you know these things about the Bible, yet you don't recognize the face of the gospel. You don't recognize Jesus himself for who he is. Their problem is not one of intellectual knowledge, but one of spiritual knowledge. This is why we see Jesus goes on to actually rebuke them in the next set of verses. Pick up with me in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So we see Jesus rebukes them strongly by reminding them of the necessity that the entire Old Testament had shown God brought his chosen leaders through suffering to glory. The Messiah himself, in fulfillment of this extensive pattern and in fulfillment of many prophecies, would also first suffer before entering into his glory. So it was set up this way. It was known this way. It was prophesied this way that Jesus would first suffer before he enters into it. And the glory comes at his resurrection and then more fully at his ascension into heaven. Why was this necessary? It was necessary because God was and he is bound by his word. This rebuke comes so strongly because they clearly have, they believe some things, but not all things. They've clearly believed some things about what prophets told them and about the Old Testament, but they haven't believed all things. They don't yet fully believe in the resurrection because all they know is the tomb is empty and instead of celebrating it, they're sad. They're going, you know, just that we had hopes makes me think about what, what maybe we don't believe yet tonight. What are those things in your own heart? Those things as you study scripture that you go, I just don't know about that. And, and I, I would say to that, that's okay. God can open your eyes. God can open your heart. There's lots of mysteries in scripture. And you see, it doesn't, doesn't seem to worry Jesus here. He's just like, I'm going to walk with him. And so I look at the same way. Jesus is going to walk with you. Wherever you're at, Jesus is going to walk with you. 
and pray. Say, God, please open my eyes, open my heart, reveal these things to me. There's things I just don't understand. Things you don't believe. Or maybe you're in here and if, if you're not in here doing this, you definitely know people who are, it's kind of become a popular term, so like a buzzword now, deconstructing of your faith. Here's the thing, if you're looking to deconstruct it, then no matter what I or anyone else teaches, you will, you'll be able to deconstruct. And you can deconstruct until there's nothing left. You can deconstruct until you basically jump off the cliff altogether. And we're seeing that happen in our culture. We're seeing that happen from very popular and known individuals. I saw someone put out on social media this week, a guy named Jonathan Dotson. Deconstructionists don't deconstruct enough. Come on now. They leave the self uncritiqued and unquestioned, privileging the institution, authority, and text of the self. And so if you are deconstructing, or if you know those deconstructing, I would encourage them to critique themselves. <laughs> and then go to the Bible, and then go to God with a humble heart. Say, God, I've deconstructed my own heart. I've deconstructed my own sin. I've deconstructed my own human nature. Now let me lay before you. That's the healthy form of deconstruction. Verse 27, Jesus says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what do we see Jesus do? How does Jesus respond to these disciples? He essentially starts a systematic Bible study with them. Jesus says, The entire Old Testament that you study, it refers to me. He says, all of the scripture, it refers to me. It's like, look, guys, this entire book that you're studying, from cover to cover, it's all about me. And it's worth noting the terribleness of sin that they have studied in the Old Testament is so deep, but so is the deep, deep love of God. And so these two, I can imagine the response going, we don't entirely understand the Old Testament, Jesus. Can you really expect us to understand it all? Like, have you ever read Exodus and Leviticus? There's some confusing things in there. Help us. They, are, they likely had some wrong ideas. Ever been there? Like, hey, I, I thought this. Maybe you can look back at one point in time where you, you held on to some kind of belief from Scripture, and you're like, oh, I was very immature in my faith. I just kind of grabbed on to that. So it likely gave them some wrong ideas, including about the cross. So there's two noteworthy observations here. Jesus believes the whole Bible is about him which means it cannot be about us. A lot of us like to reverse this story and say, man, life's all about me, so the Bible is all about me. And if I can't find about where it connects to me, then it's not true. Like, uh-uh, we got to back up. We got it wrong. It's all about Jesus, which means it cannot be about us. This also means we don't properly read our Bibles until we see how it connects to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Bible tells one story, one overarching story, one big, I'm going to use a big term, one meta-narrative and it's all about one person, one hero, and that hero is Jesus, which is why I love the Jesus Storybook Bible for kids. If you have not read the Jesus Storybook Bible, yes, it is a kid's Bible. Man, it is great for adults. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've read a story that we're going through in a sermon, and I'm like, ooh, I'm going to grab that. <laughs> None of my commentary showed me that. None of my own study and prayer showed me that. But man, here's this kid's Bible that showed me that every single story, it points back to Jesus. And, and the author of that makes a really, um, she does a really good job of connecting that for us. The second observation is that Jesus believes our faith should not only be rooted in personal experience. So, so listen to this, especially if you grew up in church. Our faith should not only be rooted in personal experience, but it should be rooted in the Bible. Which is actually why I believe many deconstruct to the point of walking away. Those who deconstruct until there's nothing left is because it was rooted in their experience. 
and their experience alone. I promise you it's not rooted in the Bible. We have a biblical faith, and we believe these things because the Bible predicted them, and they were verified and fulfilled in history. The message that saves the world, it doesn't depend on human experience. Thank God. We've all had really good experiences. We've all had really bad experiences. I've had really good experience in churches, and I've had really bad experiences in churches. Thank God it doesn't depend on my experience. And it doesn't even depend on oral testimony. There was a point in time where you said, well, that's just been passed down. And it's like playing that game where you whisper in somebody's ear, and then by the time it gets to the end, it's changed. Like there was, you know, people would claim that. Well, no longer. It cannot be claimed. It's, we have written down for us verifiable history in the Bible itself. Now, you might think, well, I don't know about that. Let me ask you. Get your history books, if you still have them. If not, there's libraries nearby. Concordia probably has some. And what facts do you believe about history that you've only read in a history book? What facts do you believe about history that you've only, you've only got one source? The Bible itself is pointing to all of these things, yet we'll say, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's very believable. Like, no. There's so much other things that you believe about history that you need to question before you question the truth. This is one of the reasons I encourage you to study on your own what it is that we're looking at at Sunday night. I'm man. I'm flawed. I add things to this sometimes that maybe shouldn't be there. Maybe they're not there. Now, I do take serious to study the Word, and I try my best to do that, but I'm still man. We're, we're not the Catholic Church, so please grab your Bibles. If you don't own one, I'll buy you one. We have blue ones. I know they're, they're paperback, but grab them. It's one that we preach from here. Study that. Come to me and say, hey, Matt, you, you said this, and I don't see that there. Can you help point that out? Like, call me out. Like, I welcome that. Hopefully, you're, you're having regular time in the Word and being challenged in the Word itself. So my question is for you, what are you rooting your faith in? Is it, a, is it a solid foundation? Is it a rocky foundation? Is your faith simply rooted in personal experience? Maybe you found yourself in here tonight and you go, you know what? I'm not really sure about this stuff and I realize it's because I'm, I'm just rooting it in some personal experience. Some Sunday school teacher told me something when I was five years old and I've just kind of held on to that even though I've never believed it. Or I was confirmed in a church. I, used to, I remember in college working with guys who did not follow the Lord. They didn't want anything to do with the church. And I was always like, like what? Hold on. You, would, you still say you, you're, you're a Christian? Like, yeah. Why? Well, I was confirmed when I was like seven. So I've already lived the rest of my life how I wanted to. I'm good to go. You know, I got my get-out-of-hell free card. I'm like, whoa, like, man, you've greatly missed it. And there's nothing against confirmation. But, like, maybe that's what they're rooting in is some kind of experience but never actually had an encounter with God. Maybe your faith's rooted in your parents' faith. Maybe you're saying, mom and dad follow it, so I'm going to follow it, or I'm just going to say, you know, that's what it is. Or is your faith built on the word of God and Jesus Christ is revealed in the word of God? It says the tomb was open, the tomb was empty, the scriptures were open and fulfilled. What we had been waiting for actually happened, actually took place, which changes everything. I love that picture to say, if this is what actually happened, if this is what took place, it should change everything about our lives, how we live. Whenever people ask me, what's the one thing that, you know, that really changed, well, how did it make sense for you? I'm always like, the resurrection. Because if a guy rose from the dead who had all these claims, then it changes everything for me, and it should change everything for you. If Jesus stayed dead, then who cares about any of it? I don't know why, but my mind is now thought, if, it, if he's dead, let's just, I'm just going to throw this thing and bust this TV, and we're just going to walk out of here and go join some protest in our city. But if it actually happened, and I believe that it did, and I hope that you believe that it, it should change how we live our lives. It should, live, it should change how we spend our time. It should change how we use our money. It should change how we use our resources. 
I think just about my own life. Like, if this isn't real, then I've wasted a lot of my life. I and mean, I'm in my early 30s, so I can go do something else. But man, every decision I've taken from about the age of 18 has revolved around this moment in history. Where I went to school, who I dated, who I married, thank God, was Andrea. Going to Argentina, going to India, moving to the city of Portland. It's a great city if you're a native. I love it. But it wasn't the top of my list. God said, you're going there. And here I am. Pick back up in verse 28. He says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, he acted as if he, was going, he were going further, and they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So it says they neared the end of their journey, and Jesus was planning on going further, but they urged him not to because it was evening. So you need to stop. You need to rest with us. The Lord was waiting to see if these two disciples would seek and desire his company further. It's almost like he's playing with them again. Like, have they started picking up yet who I am? Let's see if they desire if they're going to let me continue on my way. It's as if he is pulling out their deeper and truer desire to know him, which is often what happens in our own prayer and Bible study time. I think about whenever I'm in moments of prayer when I'm studying the Bible, you know, I'll be going through a rough time. And it's like God's just speaking to me, drawing out that truer desire, that pure desire for himself. And that's what I see happening here. And so they stopped the rest. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So what we see here, I want you to pick up on our series title. What we see is that Christ is known around the table. Jesus was at the table with them, and he takes over the meal. By the way, it's, it's not you know, proper etiquette to do that. If you invite somebody's house, you don't normally take over the meal. But Jesus kind of takes over the meal. And he went through the motions familiar at the beginning of a Jewish meal, which we looked at in detail last week. He says that he, so they stop, they get the meal. He took the bread, and he blesses it. He broke it, and he, then he gave it to them. There's striking similarities between this, the Lord's Supper, and the feeding of the 5,000 from a few weeks ago. And so we see that Jesus is known at the breaking of bread, at the meal table, sharing food with friends and enemies. Christ is known in community. So Jesus, Christ, Jesus is known around the table, and Jesus appeared in the ordinariness of life. It was at this moment that their eyes were suddenly opened and they recognized Jesus as the crucified one who died for the redemption of Israel. That's so why we think about it. It's a very ordinary scene. They're just sitting down to eat dinner. Many of us are going to do that in the next 30 minutes if I'll ever quit talking. It's a very ordinary scene, but it's also very extraordinary. God chose this moment to make his son known. And suddenly they recognize him. So they've been with him this whole time. And you can just imagine it's like, Whoa, they recognize, and then boom, Jesus vanishes. Can you imagine the look on their faces? Like, how astonishing. Like, I would be talking really, really fast, which I do anyway, but like, I'd be like, oh my goodness, like, that was Jesus this whole time. Like, did you realize it? Did you, hold on, did, did you never recognize? Well, I kind of thought, you know, the beard looked kind of similar, or, you know, I saw, I thought I saw a scar, like, on his hand somewhere. And so you, I'd be like going, tracing my steps back. But then also, it's, it's like, did you see that? Like, he's alive. Like, Jesus is really alive. Well, did, we, did you dream that too? Like, what, what just happened? Because in this moment, he's, he's, he's there, and then he vanishes. And so they looked to each other, and they said, did our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And so they recognized that the Lord had been walking with them that whole time. Here he is on the seven-mile journey. And he met them where they were at. So think about where you're at tonight. Jesus will meet you there. Regardless of your questions, regardless of, of your concerns, regardless if you're all in or you're saying, you know, I'm not really sure, if you're breaking it down, Jesus will meet you there just as he met these two. And he took a journey with them until they could see it was him. We say this a lot here, but we like to say sojourn is a church about inviting others to take a journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus and to follow him faithfully in our city. And so we see Jesus take this journey. And Jesus' exposition really of himself, of the word of God, it stirred something in them. Jesus explained to them the hidden words of scripture and he allowed the words to be made clear to him. We see Jesus join around the table, he broke bread, and then they realized it was him. This is the one that we've been seeking. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the posture that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to have every morning uh, this time of year. I'm, I'm on our back porch. Most of you have been there. I love to sit there and read the Bible first thing in the morning. And my prayer, especially as I looked at this part of this passage, is, Lord, burn your truth into my heart. Burn your truth into my heart. And, that, and that my, that's my prayer for you guys as well. That would be your posture as you open the Bible and say, Lord, reveal these things to us and burn your truth inside of us so that we can live this truth out. Finally, in verse 33 through 35, it tells us, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So do you see the reaction here? Let's, let's pay close attention. The reaction was to go and to tell others. The reaction was we need to get up and we need to go share this news with other people. They don't even appear to finish the meal. Remember, they'd just taken a seven-mile journey. they just tried to convince Jesus we need to stop and we need to rest. And here they are. Jesus reveals himself. He's gone. And they're like, oh, let's get up. You know, maybe they grabbed a loaf of bread and took it with them. Like, we're going to eat this on the go. It's just they wanted to rush back and tell everyone the news before anyone else beats them to it. They made the seven-mile trek back to Jerusalem where they found the 11 and the other disciples with them. And they shared how the Lord had appeared to Simon and that the Lord had made himself known to them through the breaking of bread. I could see them saying, like, isn't that so cool that he, like, broke the bread and did that, that same imagery of the Last Supper? Like, he, he did that, and it was at that moment. I could just imagine their accounts and their excitement. They're bubbling over with joy, which is what I hope every week we leave. I hope we're, we're bubbling over with joy that you just can't wait to go and tell your neighbors more about Jesus. The sign of the resurrection at work in people's lives is this. They understand what the Bible teaches about the cross, and they want to tell others. This has been our hope for this entire series. That since you've had an experience with the resurrected Lord, that you will now go and tell others as you join them around the table in the ordinariness of life. It is that simple. It's just doing some normal life things with a gospel intentionality. And hopefully being excited when you do it. Hopefully smiling when you do it. Showing that you are happy. Have you ever interacted with a Christian and you're like, man, that person's just sad. That person's just depressed. Like, well, I don't want to follow their God. They don't seem happy about anything in life. Like, be happy, even if there's sad things going on, because you're going back to your experience rather than the truth and the facts about God himself. And an encounter with Christ is a call to action, a call to involvement, and a call to, to participation. That's what we do as the church. You can't have a t this type of encounter. You can't have a real encounter with the almighty living God and remain a passive observer. You can't. I'm convinced you cannot. God's ultimately the judge, but when someone tells me they're a follower of Jesus, but they, they want nothing with making disciples, and they don't want to share with others, and they're not living with, with gospel intentionality, and they're not living sacrificially with their time, their talent, their treasure, I, I on man's side go, like, I don't, I don't know, because if you had that encounter, 
I kind of see the, the proper response here. Tim Chester says, as Christians, we have resurrection life, but we have it so that we might live the way of the cross. We live between the cross and resurrection, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we're kind of taught, we're kind of caught in between these, these two worlds of Good Friday, what took place in Christ's death, and then celebrating the resurrection. And so that's the, that's the moment that we live in, that we get to share with others, that we get to invite others to, to, to follow Jesus. And so we walk alongside people on their own road to Emmaus, whatever that may look like. Not as victors. We don't walk with them as people with all the answers, but we walk with them as fellow human beings, fellow sinners, fellow strugglers. I think the posture makes all the difference. You guys know that I love sitting around the table myself. You guys know that I love going out for coffee, going out for meals. I love on Sunday nights when we sit around our backyard and around the picnic tables and Thursday nights as well. Why? Because for me, Christian community, the meals that we have should achieve many things. One is these meals that we have, it's more than just we need to eat, but they should express God's grace. They should provide a glimpse of what it's like to live under God's reign. They express and reinforce the community of Christ, which was created at the cross. They're a foretaste of the new creation, albeit a pale reflection, right? But it's a foretaste. And they're a great context in which to invite unbelievers so they can encounter the reality of God among us. Hopefully as how they see us dine with one another, how they see us live out the one another's that we see in Scripture. But it's really because these meals, what they represent is really everything that matters. Think about creation, redemption, mission. That we might eat together in the presence of God. The food that we consume, the table around which we sit and the companions gather with us have as their end our communion with one another and with God. And that is what it's all about. And so as we wrap up this series, we're going to respond as we commonly do on Sunday nights different ways. So we're going to respond through worship, singing songs of praise like we did at the beginning. Now you may say, you know what, I'm not a singer. I'm personally not a singer. You may say, I don't hear you sing. Well, if you're back there near me, you'll hear me sing. But maybe I'm not a singer. But if you're a follower of Jesus, once again, don't, don't, do, don't base it on how you feel or, or how, how good or not good you are at something, but posture your heart towards God. You know, sometimes we should just raise our hands because God is God. You might say, That's, that seems weird. I'm not charismatic. You're like, that's fine. You don't have to be charismatic. I see I knock over guitars and coffee and everything else while I'm up here. But we praise God because of who God is, not because of how you feel. Smile when you worship. I see so many just like solemn faces, somber faces, and I want to be like, can I shake you? Like, are you worshiping or are you not worshiping? If you don't know Jesus, I'm like, I get it. Like, this is dumb. But if you know Jesus, like, you should smile sometimes. Hopefully there's some joy in you. If there's not joy in you, then... We need to go out and get coffee this week and talk about the God that you know and understand because I think maybe we're, we, it's a different one. Prayer. We're going to confess to God. We're going to hopefully repent of things that have happened, the things that we've done, and seek the only one who has the, the privilege or who's able to set that table in the back there for us. We respond by giving. Those who call sojourn their church, we give generously of our time, our talent, our treasure as an act of worship. So yes, the box back there, it's, it is, it's for a few things. One, it is to give of our tithes and offerings. And some of us do that online. I do it online. But it is to say, hey, this is a spot that we, we give so that we can um, give towards mission and give to God. It's a spot to put needs. If there's a prayer request, something like, you know what, I just need someone to pray for. Like, we grab those. We pray for those. So that box is available. 
And then finally, what we looked at tonight, and in depth last week, the Lord's Supper, which is a family meal. So it's for those who've believed and trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And hopefully that truth has become made more of a reality for you in this series, and hopefully even tonight. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 30. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so maybe you need to take a few moments tonight. Maybe you need to get clean yourself. Only the, the cleanliness only Jesus can bring to us before taking the outward sign of communion. So I want to encourage all of us. I'm going to pray, and Mandy and Todd will come back up. They're going to lead us in song. But take a few moments. You don't have to rush back to the table. They can, they can keep playing if they need to. It doesn't really have to be music. Ask God to inspect your heart. Get things over you need to get to him. Repent if you need to repent. And then take when you're ready. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we come to you. And as we, we think about this story that we looked at tonight, God, there was a moment where these disciples 